Hello, it's me, Clara Ampho, and in anticipation, I hope so, I'm anticipating it, I hope you are too, of the third series of This Sissy coming later on this year, I thought I'd drop a special mini-series featuring some incredible guests that I just couldn't wait to share with you. So, in this three-part series, I will travel through London with some of our nearest and dearest Londoners and adopted lovers of the city. On this episode of This Sissy, I welcome a person who I admire and respect deeply. One of the best minds I've come across in the past decade, actually. I love everything he writes, everything he says. He's a very talented artist in all senses of the word. He is a gifted rapper, author, and most of the work he's released thus far has been autobiographical, but this time he's turned his pen to fiction, young adult fiction. His book, The Dark Lady, his debut novel is out now, and it's so very good. I don't think people realise that this guy is also really funny. So people, get ready. This is Akala. Akala, hello. How you doing? You right? I'm all right. Welcome to my podcast, This City. I've been wanting to get you on for a minute. So I'm delighted to have you all on. Good. No, thank you. You're making me smile. Just looking at you is making me smile. You know, you're smile. You're smiling so heavy that I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to be even happier than I already was. Look, look um, at it. Look at yeah, it. You well, make me smile. There, there's so much to discuss because I don't think we've ever had the chance to have a conversation. I've kind of seen you about in passing when I've been like rushing from A to B, like out of my usual work building. But I don't think we've ever. Had a, had a yeah, I think we've had a proper chop up. I think we've had like a, a, a 60 second pleasantry on, on many occasions, but not like a proper. Yeah, often. Well done. Um, first, up, I want to big up you for, you know, writing this book, The no, Dark Lady, which I'm holding in my hand no, right now. You. Your no, debut you. novel. Um, are you Henry? Can I just straight up ask you that? <laughs> you can. You can. Look, I think most people write themselves a little bit like if you fit you know and I think not not that he is me no but there are elements obviously of my own character my own journey um but transposed 500 years ago and and you know so I tried to give him some of the flaws that I have some of the imperfections that I have obviously I can't read any language other than English so that's all <laughs> Henry I mean I tried to make him his own unique character too but yeah sure 100% there's there's definitely elements of my own self and my own journey and um, obviously, I didn't end up part of an elite secret society, but but or I didn't work with Shakespeare directly, um, <laughs> and, and didn't get you know close to the Elizabethan aristocracy. But you know, and I think in terms of sort of, for want of a better word, social mobility, in terms of what your intelligence can expose you to, and what it exposes in you and in other people. You know, when you when you're when you come from the wrong side of the tracks or didn't grow up in the right family or whatever else, and yet you're too sort of smart for your own good according to other people and, and not to say that I, I I believe that in that way. I think I know a lot about some things and I'm ignorant about almost everything else, but nonetheless, the sort of journey you go on um, or I've gone on. Yeah. Henry's journey is, is not entirely dissimilar, but much more extreme because it's a novel after all. Well, this is it. I mean, there's a couple of bits that stood out to me. So I just wanted to read you your own book because that's not going to be embarrassing for you, is it? <laughs> but it's the bit that said, yeah, Henry was not good with boredom. Pain, grief and anger he could do. Henry was used to these and had found strategies for coping with them. But boredom drove him to his wit's end. And I thought, OK, with all the creative things that you do, you know, whether it is, you know, writing fiction, like your essays, uh, whether it's making music, you seem like somebody who can't sit still for too long. 
Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. that's probably true. No, I do meditate though. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much as I should. Um, but yeah, sitting still is not one of my strengths. Let me not even lie to myself. Do you know what I mean? I find it hard. Um, yeah, I find it hard to sit still. Let me let me not lie to myself. Boredom, boredom's not for me. Well, that's why I'm glad I've got you for this podcast. Well, look, you know what the deal is. The podcast is called This City. It's all about London. And again, bringing it back to the book. Um, mm. That is where that is where your uh, story set. And I love the fact that your <laughs> the first sentence is London stank. Yeah, yeah, that's that's straight. It's funny. A, a journalist said to me yesterday, and I want to take credit for it. Um, but I can't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give her credit. Um, that you know, the book is kind of a love letter to London, and in a way, it is that. Even though obviously it's all about inequality and violence and the corruption and greed of the political elite and the way in which London promises flashing lights and social progress and riches, but for most people from backgrounds like like mine, doesn't deliver any of that. It delivers the exact opposite. Nonetheless, it's one of the greatest cities in the world. I don't think anyone would dispute that. And I think for ethnic, so-called ethnic minority working class Londoners in particular, many of us would un- unambiguously feel like, yes, we're Londoners, though our British identity or English would be much more complicated. There's no hyphenated Londoner. Like, you're just a Londoner, right? Mm. Whereas obviously there are hyphenated Brits and there are hyphenated English people. Um, and I think London's unique culture actually is much older than people understand. Elizabethan London was already a multi-ethnic melting pot. It was already drawing in immigrants from all over Europe and some from the Middle East and some from Africa. Um, back then, you know, that that stuff, all that stuff about the South Side, English being the minority language is true. That stuff about there being a French Quarter is true. Um, that stuff about the attempt to expel workers from what is now Belgium, from Elizabethan London, all of that really happened. Um, so a lot of modern London for me begins in this era here, mm. not in the Industrial Revolution, but actually in the 16th century. Um, and so I have this, like many people, probably weird thing where on the one hand I complain about all the things that are wrong with Britain, which is correct, and I think I would do anywhere I lived. And I have this weird feeling of London being, for all its flaws, a, re- a really, really unique Really, really unique place. Like, well, take me back to your, I guess, your your formative, your teenagers, when you were first, I guess, allowed to kind of like be out and about. You know, when your when your when your mum or whoever takes care of you is like, okay, look, mm-hmm. you're allowed to go to like here by yourself. You're allowed to you're allowed to go here with a group of mates and like do this. Where were you first going as well, a kid or as a teenager and sort of like discovering London like for yourself in in that in that I guess in that way. Hundred percent. I mean, for me, it was it was a few things collided to mean that I had adult level responsibility very, very early. One, my mum got very, very sick in my first two years of secondary school. Um, two, dad wasn't there. He he had another family. I mean, he did come and visit, so I'm not going to you know say he wasn't around, but he came, he came to visit on maybe weekends or holidays or whatever else, but he wasn't in the house. And I was playing for West Ham as a schoolboy. And my mum couldn't exactly tell me I couldn't go to football training but she physically couldn't take me. And so I was, whether she was, whether it was because she was working or at first when she was recovering from the cancer. So I was going to Romford three times a week on a train on my own from age 13. And it's not as if we were from the kind of family that could afford a taxi, right? And so my desire to be a professional footballer meant that A, I had adult level responsibility of getting myself to training on time, uh, of coming home late in the evening all the way from East London. Back then, that area was not particularly friendly to black people back then. You know, it's a lot more multi-ethnic now, but in the 90s, it was still sort of NF territory kind of vibe. Listen, when I go um, to Mastery, I'm always just like, where are all the black people? <laughs> These are- yeah. Yeah. 
So Mayor Street's changed. But remember, I'm coming from North London, sort of Archway, Holloway, Camden. I'm getting the train all the way through Hackney, through all those areas, right. to Stratford, changing at Stratford, getting on the other line to go Romford. So even all that was peak because a lot of this end stuff that people pretend is new, that existed even in, in my era, in my age group. In fact, it began in my age group. Um, and so I had a lot of responsibility very, very early. Got to see a lot of London very, very early and a lot of England. You know, playing football, I got to go up and down the country with my football team and around the world. I went I went to Dallas. I went to Ireland. My school uh, had a trip to Rome and to Barcelona and kids who were on free school meals could go for like 10% of the cost. And my mum was one of those busybodies who found that out and sent me. All the man them went to Butlins. <laughs> yeah. Instead, then I wanted to go Butlins with the man them. My mum was like, no, you have to go. You've got to expose yourself to more stuff. And to credit to my mum and a few of the other parents from similar backgrounds, like they were proper on that. I'm going to make sure my kid gets exposed to more stuff. And then, you know, we had a few challenges. My, my older sister moved out because things between her and my mum were quite difficult. And I think from then on, I was kind of allowed to do what I wanted because mm. it was almost like, well, one kid's gone her own way. We've just nursed my mum through sickness. We're adults now. And so actually from 14, 15, it was, it was very, I mean, sometimes I just lied and said I was staying at my friend's house when really I was at Coliseum Raven. That's the truth. <laughs> the classic. Like I, was in I was in Coliseum, all them gully, garage clubs, Coliseum, trends, chimes. I was in those places when I was like 14, 15 and I had football the next day. Because I had a beard back then and I was already, you know, five foot 11. I, I, me and the man them used to go to play. I went pure silk New Year's Eve 1999. So people who know I was born in 1983 can do the maths at Wembley wow. Conference Centre. So I was unfortunately exposed to a lot of unpleasant stuff, shall we say, you know, but a lot of responsibility. And in hindsight, it's easy to be philosophical about it and say, look, if I didn't go through all of that, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Mm. On the other hand, it's not what I'd want for, for my children. And there are certain things that I think it's okay to stay a child and to be shielded from. Um, so I saw the best and the worst of London very, very early. It's so interesting what you said about um, your your mum's insight into being like, okay, yeah, yeah, all your mates are going to Butlins, but I'm going to send you over here. Like when you travelled outside of the country, did that change your relationship um, with, with London? Did you did you come back feeling, I don't know, a bit more, I don't even want to use the word bougie, but did you come back thinking like, hmm, I love this place even more. There's more for me from outside of here. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of, probably even a lot of the young rappers are going through that now where, when your world is your ends, those things are important to you. What the man on the block think of you is, is, is the center of your life. When you're like, mm, I've got a show in Hong Kong next week. I've had this, a lot of the young drillers and other men have called me like, bruv, what do I do? How do I make the transition without man thinking I'm a dickhead basically? Because now your, your world is way bigger. Mm -hmm. like, I don't, you're not a bad boy. If you're making more in a day than your parents made in a lifetime, and you screwed it up to prove to the brothers in the ends what a tough guy you are. That's not a good move. It doesn't make you a tough guy. None of that. Like, it's actually stupid at that point. Naturally, if you're in the street, violence is part of the business model, right? But if you're a successful musician, it's no longer part of the business model and you have to make that transition. So, for example, we went to Belfast for a club tournament with West Ham. And just encountering kind of the kind of old school racism that existed in Belfast still at that time, like tough, skinhead man. But obviously they had the Catholic Protestant thing, which was more central, but there was like a thing of like, yo, that ends over there, man, them shouldn't go over there. Like, And obviously it's white boys. So there was not really anywhere in central London by the time I grew up. It was either like the white youths had become man them. They started speaking like us and were like, there was the, the, the overt racism that our parents dealt with 
that was more something that happened when you traveled to Eltham. You know, to anywhere outside of zone three or four, right? It wasn't something that in our world really existed. Who's really going to move to Blackheath in Tottenham or Camden or, or Peckham or somewhere like that? It wouldn't be very smart, right? So mm. we that made me think, rah, that hostility there. But also just how hood Belfast was, you know, like because the underclass in London is overwhelmingly black, lots of black Londoners ourselves even conflate correlation for causation. I, if you live somewhere that's a poor neighborhood and everybody's black, you're going to confuse the violence and poverty that exists for being related to blackness. This is how we get stupid shit like black on black crime. When you go somewhere like Belfast, those white boys are not boys that I would pick a fight with. I'll tell you that straight. In fact, yeah. one of them used to be in my team and he used to say to us all the time, like you black boys really think you're tough, innit? Like I grew up with tanks on my street. Like you you lot cannot intimidate me. What? Because you're from Brixton. Obviously I'm not from Brixton, but it was like, because you're all from Brixton. Like that, that was the joke he used to make. It was like, if you come where I live, there's tanks, B. Don't like, we're not, we're not the middle-class white youths you're used to, like mm. the latte drinking coffee shop man. Them. No, that's <laughs> not us. And so I think traveling in that sense was an eye opener. Obviously traveling to Rome and Barcelona as a kid, even as a 14 year old boy, I was, and I rate my mum for sending me, I was aware of how, like, I'm not particularly religious, but going to the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican and just thinking about the level of work that goes into that level of artistic excellence. Mm. It's something Michelangelo said, um, obviously, he said, uh, if you saw the amount of work that went in, you wouldn't call it genius, basically, right? It's something I read more recently. I, I, I rated that, but seeing that level of work, we went to Dali's museum, I'm rubbish at art, like even now, like I can't draw, I draw stick figures, like, so artists are magicians to me anyway, but I think being exposed to different things, 100%, it expands your world, it makes you look at your own universe differently, even though I continued to make some some bad decisions as a teenager, because I was around certain things, and I, my, my friend group was what it was, and I didn't go to university, even though I should have, um, like a lot of brothers that come out of football at the wrong age, I didn't go back into school because that transition path wasn't there. So I didn't go to university and college. And obviously if all your good friends, quote unquote, have gone off to uni and college, who's left in the ends? You know what I mean? Who's mm -hmm. about to, to roll with? And so I kind of had a period of time where, where I fancied myself as a bit of a tough guy and, and made some mistakes regardless. But I had that exposure to other things very, very young that I think has played a huge role in why my life has gone where it's gone and why I've been able to do the things that I do and why I feel the way I feel. Mm. Well, it's, it's really interesting what you said about, um, you know, a lot of young artists kind of coming to advice, which, you know, I see, I mean, particularly, you know, last year when everybody in the world suddenly realised that, oh my God, racism exists. You know, you yeah. were on, you were on Instagram live, like, you know, heavy and really, mm. and it was really interesting to see like that, how the numbers would rise with every conversation you have. People like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how... I'm not going to use the word role models because I think I, th I for me personally I find that term quite quite loaded. Yeah, but how how do you I guess reconcile with how much people look up to you and how much and how much of yourself do you feel that you have to almost I don't want to use the word sacrifice either but how much basically my, I think I think my thought is you can you can only do so much for other people without compromising your own health, I believe, your own like, mm -hmm. like your own mental health, your own spiritual health. And people re like revere you in such a way, particularly young black men, black men and women revere you in such a way. Like I saw that like last June. How do, how do you save, how do you, how do you, how do you preserve yourself in that? Funnily enough, putting aside your own self 
doesn't always mean the things you think it means. So if we take the situation last June, anyone who knows me on a personal level knows that I actually quite like fighting and I'm comfortable with violence, like in my own life. So what I personally feel if a man confronts me in the street, as has happened many times throughout my life, I'm 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 okay with it, bro. That's like, going to be my next question, be... actually. Like when you're walking around London, how 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 do people treat you? Out of... Yeah, yeah. Well, man, man, have an instinctive way of. I'm not saying like I'm some bad boy because I'm not. But I went through certain things growing up. You can kill me, but you can't intimidate me. Not in that way, bro. Like, it's not gonna go. So I'll be about. And man will be like, right, man's just about. Yeah, I'm just about, bro. And it's it's whatever you want it to be. I'd rather help your kids with their homework. But if you think my joy and my willingness to be Mr. Hey Kids Get Good GCSEs means someone I, you, I'm someone you could take for an idiot, you better be willing to take it all the way because I'm going to defend myself. Mm -hmm. So if we come back to that situation last June, it was really hard for me to say to people, actually, I think the right thing to do is let these people go and piss on the statues themselves and just leave them to it. That was hard for my own ego because my own ego was saying, no, that's some idiot thing. Come in, like... But would that have been good for my community? Would it have been good for particularly lots of the young boys I've spent much of my adult life trying to help stay out of prison? What I didn't say at the time was, you know, I still, I'm still about. So young boys were coming up to me saying certain things. And that was part of what drove me to that decision where I'm like, I know how young, there are some young brothers from the street who have love in their heart, but the only thing they can contribute is violence right now. And I know because many of my friends were like that when I was 15 or 16. That is not, people who want well for that group of people, we have to be very, very careful about how we use that understandable and justifiable rage. And so sometimes putting your own ego aside for what you believe rightly or wrongly is the greater good is, is part of what you're talking about here. And, and because I think people know, know man and they see man about it, they, they know that's what it is. But also I think that coming back to the sort of the role model question, I think precisely because people know I'm imperfect, and I come from certain things and I've seen, and I've chosen not to emphasize how much badness my friends and cousins and uncles did. And, and I saw myself and the mistakes that I made. I could have done that whole thing. Yeah, me and my bridgens did this, me and my bridgens did that. Then man tried this and this is how we responded and so on and so forth. I've decided not to do all of that. I want to be Mr. Hey Kids Get Good GCSEs. Like I, I, I've, I've actively, and in a way that is changing myself for the greater good. The truth is I wasn't always that person. The truth is my friends definitely weren't. But I feel like we have enough of the road stuff. That's not to knock anyone else who tells that story. But if I really spoke about some of the things I've been exposed to all the time, people would be like, oh, I never I never really knew. Like, whereas the man that know, are like, oh, you know, my man used to be a bit like a bit different, innit? Like a proper rate, the transition he's made. Um, and that's not to say I was ever that guy, because I wasn't. But like a lot of brothers, I was on the periphery of certain things. I think that especially at an older age, what I see what has been so beautiful is the amount of brothers of my age that I've seen on the ground make that transition. And people who are far deeper into madness than I was, who are now working in schools, who are now transitioning, who are now writing books, who are now working on gang truces. And if you're a man in your mid-30s unwilling to try and be a role model, you failed at life, bro. Like, because you're definitely trying to be a role model for your own kids, so if you're trying to be a role model for your own children, then by extension, you logically have to try and be a role model for other people's children. And if you just look, look at all the rappers of my age and go on their Instagram, half of them spend half their time on Instagram playing with their kids. Now, they're not actively trying to form a campaign to promote responsible fatherhood, but ultimately, like, they're not on their Instagram talking about the things they would be talking about when they're 22. They're, 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 they're like, yo, I'm with my daughter, I'm with my son, I'm doing this, I'm on a school run. 
because what else would you be doing at 35 years old? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no, even when you look at the patterns of violence, men over 25 are just not involved in certain things. And it's not that we're not capable of violence anymore. It's that your responsibilities change, your emotional maturity changes, your ego changes, how much you're invested in all that stuff. Um, and so I think I was just lucky really early. I made a decision to... Uh, step back from certain things. And I could make that decision because I didn't live on the estates my friends lived on. I lived sort of slightly out of things. Um, and so I was allowed to sort of make that transition a bit more easily than someone who lived on Church Road or on Broadwater Farm or on Stonebridge. Um, and so I think lots of different things coalesced to allow me to do that, but it is tough. Um, I'm conscious that people look to man in a certain way. I'm not going to play that down or deny that. At the same time, I've also tried to be like, don't put anybody on a pedestal. Like my thing is not, I'm not up here trying to be the leader or try, one of the reasons I ain't been on TV all year really, even though it'd have been great for my career to be all over the press this year and I could have been, I feel like it's really important for other voices to emerge. So I was consciously saying, no, I'm all right, talk to this person. No, I'm all right, talk to that person. I don't always need to be the loudest microphone in the room. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what I think. And what I think people need to see, especially the broader community, is that I'm not alone. There's plenty of other black people that feel this way or other people from certain backgrounds who have similar views and similar opinions. Let other voices emerge. We don't need... Like, I'm not trying to create no messiah complex. And mm -hmm. I think we should be nervous about giving any one individual too much power, too much praise, too much pedestal, because everyone, myself included, obviously, has an ego. And you have to constantly manage the relationship between... Obviously, it feels amazing for like, you know, I feel like when I walk down the street and it's not just young people, mm -hmm. when auntie and uncle, remember we we got a certain, we're Caribbean morality, right? Or West African morality where it's like still what your oldest think is very, very important. When I'm in the street and aunties and uncles will stop me and say, Yo, yes, you, I'm proud of you. See that feeling, yeah? Yeah. That, I'm not giving that up. No, you know I mean? it's like, magical. That's important to me. I need to hear about 100%. It's right? magical. And so I think that um, that has meant that some other sides of myself, I never rap about sex. Obviously, I have sex and I enjoy sex, right? Now, how honest <laughs> are you listen, being? I remember if, the lyrics from as a, bit as, by bit. As a person. You say, you say fucking huh? in that song. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. One song, like, how many years ago? You know what I mean? When you when you think about the role sex plays in, in, a, in a person's life, yeah. it's quite an, a hugely important part of life, right? Yeah. I've, I've kind of deliberately not made many songs of, of that nature. I now, how much that you could say that that means... I'm only presenting one part of who I am. I, I, I don't know. But I try to um I try to be, for want of a better term, a, a role model without restricting myself artistically. And that's difficult. Like I like DMX, rest in peace to DMX, rest in peace to Black Rob. I like DMX's music and Mavado's music more than I like a lot of the quote unquote conscious rappers' music. Not dissing any of them. I'm talking about what resonates with me frequency-wise, but I know the contradictions of that. Like some of the stuff in that music is not positive at all. But as music, it evokes something in me that um, that isn't always there in music that's safer and more mm. deliberately conscious, whatever that means. And so I'm a hypocrite in some ways too. Like We're all hypocrites. It is so. what it is. I just try and... 100%. Um, but I'd rather try and be a hypocrite for a good reason than, than a bad reason. Do you know what I mean? I hear that. And so yeah, I, just, I try to present and be a better man than perhaps I really am so that I myself have something to aspire to and so that young boys see, right, actually, you know, my thing's always been your 
ability to defend yourself does not correlate with how smart you are or are not. And one of the most toxic things for young boys in particular is this idea that being smart is soft. So I've seen it in schools all the time where young boys who are very bright will try and play themselves down and try and act like they're not as smart as they are because they think being smart makes them soft. And I'm like, no, brother, like, no, it's not that. And so I feel like ex-roadman rappers and MMA fighters have like a real role to play in saying to young boys, no, no, there's a different model of masculinity. You can read philosophy. You can mm. write poetry. You can be into science and geography and whatever else. And still, if someone places their hand on you, tries to physically you can write harm a novel. you or your loved ones, <laughs> act accordingly. Or you can write a novel, right? And now if someone tries to harm you or your loved ones, you, you respond appropriately. But you don't need to present an image or... Uh, a, a mode of yourself that is less than what you really are. Oh, for sure. Because I, 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 I remember reading, um, you know, you talking about just, you, yeah, you were saying you're a bit of a nerd. You weren't even really into music. You weren't really into football. You were socialised into those things, weren't you? They weren't, they weren't like your, yeah, your initial I, I first loves. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to be a scientist when yeah. I was a kid. And ironically, it wasn't my gangster uncles that taught me out of being a scientist. There was this thing we used to do when we had family gatherings, right? So all the, all the, I mean, it's just the truth. I don't know what else to say, right? All the goons would come over the house. And where was and, this happening, by the way? Because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to say, I, I want people to really, you know, for anybody who's never heard of you, which I'm just, listen, I know everybody has, but still, you know, yeah. we've got to put the disclaimer up there. You know, I'm trying to get this, the, the image of, of, of you growing up in the city with, with your family. So... Well, I was lucky, right? So we lived on a street. I didn't live on an estate. We lived on a street. We got we we struck the council house lottery, if you like. Right? So we were two roads away from the estate. There's a street here. And then up that way was like really, really rich people. You go up towards Highgate and down that way was Elfhorn Estate and all of that sort of stuff, right? So we had a house. Um, we couldn't afford to heat the thing all the time or keep the electricity on, but nonetheless, we had a proper family home. I didn't have carpet in my room until I was whatever age, right? So it was this weird thing where you had an estate-type upbringing, but in, but in a, in a council house. Um, so that was one thing that was really lucky and in our favour. But, you know, some of the family friends, you know, would, like any family, they were... They were they were not involved in the in the correct things, should we say, to put it mildly, yeah? But what I always found fascinating was, A, they used to threaten to beat me up if I dropped out of school. And B, one thing I really remember, and I don't even know if they were conscious of it at the time. I used to be really into Darwin's theory of evolution, right? It was what we were studying at school. And so I used to recite all this stuff about how Australopithecus evolved from, I don't remember what the words were even now, right? And so I want people to picture the scene, like all these old OGs, uh, like bribing me saying say that thing again i'm like six and they'd pay me money and just laugh like wet themselves with laughter right at listening to me say oh it's that australopithecine evolved from upright man in four thousand million bc blah 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 right so actually i was receiving positive affirmation from some of the people in my life who were who were i mean there's no way to put it some, some of them were gangsters that's just the simple truth right mm. um yeah i went to school and some of my middle class white school teachers were offended by the fact that I was basically too smart for my own good. I got put in special needs group for kids who don't speak English, all that stuff that people have, people have read in natives. And so the football thing and the music thing was a process of socialization rather than the natural inclinations that I had and I wanted to be into. No one told me that Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin were posh white guys and therefore I wasn't supposed to be into their work, right? That's something I actually learned from my teachers in a way. Mm. It was almost like, no, no, don't aspire to be too smart. I know we're supposed to educate you, but actually know your role. And a lot of that is about the British class system too, obviously. Um, 
And so the sports and music thing happened as as I got older. I started puberty very, very early, which was lucky for me. And in a way, I often look back Did and wonder Did you just wake up one day and was I like, feel. yo, what's up, mum? <laughs> I, I sound like this. <laughs> Fam, man had, man had armpit... Man had armpit hair in primary school. Like, it was mental. Like, all my dad's kids, we start puberty, like, early, like, eight or something. Like, wow. Man had full-on armpit hair in primary school. And if you see a picture of me, like, the, my debut game for West Ham, I was, like, already 5'10 or 5'11. I mean, lots of people think I'm short. I think I look short on the telly. I'm actually six foot, right? But, you know, not tall, but tall enough. But, so I was, like, 5'10, 5'11. All the boys are, like, here. I was playing against Chelsea. I got the photos. Like, I just grew very, very early. And I wonder how much of that has shaped my confidence. I say that to say this, right? Being the kid in school who's good at football, who's reasonably physically strong, even in terms of my relationship to, to blackness, right? A lot of mixed race boys growing up, the way they show how black they are because of the dysfunctional way in which black identity is portrayed in Britain is not by, is by showing that, yeah, I'm, I'm bad like all the men in a minute. Like, that's the truth. Like, it's, it's... Yeah, right. It's almost like an aspiration to to society's stereotypes of what a black male should be. I'm good at sports. I can fight. Blah blah blah. It's not. It's not that aspiring to be the Ghanaian doctor. Do you know what I mean? Or the Jamaican architect. <laughs> That's what my parents wanted for me. That that didn't quite happen. But, right. <laughs> my dad was our, a Ghanaian doctor. Our parents doctor. are correct. Yeah. <laughs> our, our parents are correct in some ways, right? But sometimes they're short sighted too. I love I love traditional Caribbean parents and traditional African parents, but sometimes their aspiration to a standard middle-class career, that makes sense back in Jamaica or Ghana or Nigeria where there is limited opportunities, where being an artist or a musician or a podcaster doesn't seem like a viable career. Once you transpose that to Britain and to a, to a larger and more diverse economy, there are ways in which those traditional middle-class careers might not be the best thing for your child. And lots of, we've seen it through our period. I remember when I was growing up, West African parents were still like, no, nah, my son's not going to be a footballer. Now those 300 grand a week checks have started to come in. A lot of Ghanaian and Nigerian parents are like, Listen. Oh, okay. You will make Let's have me, a reconsideration you will make me of... very wealthy. You will take care of me, okay? Oh, I've the, seen this see so many of my aunties. And before, when I when I was started to get into my career, I was like, oh, okay. Because my dad was, my dad, God rest his soul, was a microbiologist. And interesting enough, when you when you mentioned Elton, that was the that's where my dad first lived when when he came over to the UK from Ghana, and he was he saw what was going on here, just like you know what, and he, and he moved and he moved he moved away. But um, yeah, it's interesting seeing the shift with my aunties and uncles because now they're just like, oh okay, TV, radio, but it wasn't it was it wasn't they weren't saying that about five or six years ago until they until they can see like tangible sort of proof that. It's it, it's like a money making business, or at least a business of pride. You know, hundred percent. The culture is changing by being in a different economy, mm. um, and economics changes culture. It's one of the reasons when people talk about culture, culture is partly a driver of material change. But I would argue, culture is a result of economic change in many ways. And obviously, being in an economy where you can make a really solid living and be respected doing podcasts or doing media means that you can but even what you just said about your dad being a microbiologist mm. I think it's really fascinating to me like the things that Britain has told itself about black people versus the reality like what kinds of Ghanaians and Nigerians do they think can even get the money together to come to the country to even get a visa do you see what I mean? Like, so it's like, are people that brain dead that they don't realize that if you come from an economy in which, you know, GDP per capita is five or 6,000 US dollars a year, if you even manage to get the money together to come to Britain, you were already a certain type of person in the economy that you left. Oh, absolutely. And so it's, it's, 
it's ironic that you have these negative perceptions uh, and portrayals when particularly for the later uh, West African population, as you'll know, even if people were working class in Britain, i.e. became cleaners and security guards and whatever else, many of those that generation had university degrees before they came here. And, and your dad would be no exception in that, mm. in, in that rule. Obviously, some of my friends, a lot of my best friends growing up were Nigerian. Their, friend, their families were a bit more working class. Like my um, friend's best friend's mum was, was a cleaner. And I don't think she did go to university back in Nigeria. Yeah, my, my mum's a cleaner. She just retired. But that's the thing. My, my parents both went to hospitals just doing two very different things. 100%. Yeah. So I don't want to idealise the experience yeah. either and pretend that everyone was middle class. I'm just saying that the effort it takes alone to be able to migrate thousands of miles across the world, people born with a red passport and in a rich economy just really have no idea unless unless you have a connection to some of these countries on what it actually takes for people to even be able to move. Um, and so it's fascinating, uh, that, that level of projected ignorance in a way. Really, it really is. Akal, I'm very aware that time is of the essence. I love to get people's experiences of the city through their stories. And look, we all love food. You mentioned the aunties and uncles earlier. And I just had this image of you being cooked for very well, or you just enjoying some great food growing up. So who was cooking for you? Did you do you know how to cook? Are you a great cook? Or where are you going to eat in London? I'm a rubbish cook. Right. <laughs> dreadful. I, I cook what some people call prison food. So I like boil a yam boil a, a plant in, uh, get some avocado and just mash it up and just just eat it for nutrition. Like, yeah, gym food. Um, but in terms of eating in London, there's a great place called 222 Veggie Vegan in, in Fulham, which is fantastic. There is a Caribbean takeaway on All Saints Road, um, a really small like, hole in the wall Caribbean takeaway on All Saints Road. And people will have to forgive me for getting the name because my, my brain's just escaped me today. Um I mean, London's got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to food, right? Mm. There's loads of great, in West London, loads of great Italian places um, around the sort of Portobello Road area. Obviously in central London, you've got every option you, you could want. Um, I really like Thai food. There's an amazing Thai place in on York Way, okay. right near the bottom. I can't Again, I can't remember the name, but right near the bottom of York Way, there's an amazing Thai food place. London's got too much food. That's one of the best things about London. Okay, that's food taken care of. You going raving as a as a team. I'm intrigued to know what you were wearing in the club. Were you uh, a full on machino looks kind of guy? Was it a jogging bottoms in the club situation? Were you were you smart? Were you smooth? What well, was garage? Remember, I mean, right. I mean, I feel sorry for the youngers. The garage scene was it was just it's indescribable how good that was. Like it was it was. It's only when I look back now I think that shit was incredible. You had to dress up though. Like it was. Remember, even the even the Colosseum where badness was happening, you still had to wear shoes. So you know, I remember. I remember vividly when I bought my first pair of Gucci loafers. I, I was when I went in the club. I was the Averex and Woolly Hat guy. Right. Um, but obviously, you couldn't get into any unless you was someone really important, which I wasn't. You couldn't get into those clubs with that with that kind of clove clothing. So I was, you know, shoes. I did have a little iceberg in the collection. I did have a few um, few shirts and that. So I was I was on I was on a smart thing. I remember I bought this yellow YSL bright luminous yellow with flowers on it like it was oh it was horrendous with luminous yellow trousers like it was like YSL's attempt to do off-key mosh and at the time I thought I was the sickest guy in the world um but it, but it was absolutely horrible but yeah no I, I tried my best to get smart on a limited budget um because times was hard you know what I mean but yeah I was I was I was the smart guy is there photographic evidence of these uh of these looks anywhere <laughs> there's a photographic evidence I saw a picture recently I was a bit older um I was about 21 
and I was wearing like this Versace linen suit and I thought, look at this poser. It's <laughs> on my Instagram somewhere. I was like, look at this guy. This guy really thought he was, he thought he was sick. I'd been in the gym heavy, like man was looking kind of wimp still. Um, so I was feeling <laughs> myself, but there is some, I'm sure there's photographic evidence somewhere. I'll tell you what, there is photographic evidence. Of. Go on. When I was 15, I dyed my hair blonde like a full idiot. Wow. I had a, yeah, me and my bridging. And it's weird because we both thought we were so tough. Yeah, I what, blame Rio. Rio dyed, dyed his hair blonde. Yeah, everyone says Cisco, but it wasn't Cisco. Man wasn't a Drew Hill fan, no disrespect. <laughs> um, Rio dyed his hair blonde and we were Rio Ferdinand fans. Like Rio was the guy in it. Like that's, he was he was a barter. So I think I'm going to blame Rio for that one. Safe Rio. Okay, noted. Blame Rio Ferdinand for your blonde hair, some loud YSL looks and go to the Thai place on York Way. Noted, noted, noted. Right, before I let you go, I have to ask, what do you want people to take away from this book, The Dark Lady? Um, enjoyment, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think that, you know, one of the things, it is inspired by a number of different things, right? One of the things that was it was inspired by it. So through all my work with the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company, you know, visited hundreds of schools, not just in Britain, but around the world. Um, one thing young people, particularly young black people used to say to me, were there... Were there black people back then, sir? Now think about the phrasing of the question, right? Not were there black people in London, which is understandable, surprising. People might be shocked to learn that m most of what I've written in there is based on real scholarship about African presence in Elizabethan London um, in terms of the people, the, um, the, the fact that there were black people there and that the, the, the attempted expulsion of the Moors was true and so on and so forth. Um, but were there black people in that time, i.e., Lots of young black people, even in Africa and the Caribbean, are growing up with no conception of a black medieval existence because we've not seen it in cinema. It's not been portrayed in books. And it's sad because actually lots of people will be shocked to know that the technological chasm that now exists between Western Europe and West Africa was not always there. When the Portuguese first arrived in Africa, they attempted to invade the kingdom of the Congo in 1622. They failed because they did not yet have enough of a military advantage to, to conquer them. And so I suppose what I'm saying is when you look at a lot of the primary source material from the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries, the Europeans did not believe Africans were inferior yet because the people they were trading with on the West African coast were the local elites, right? So there was a very much a consciousness of not necessarily, I would say, equality. There was a there was a racism of these people are black, they're different, they're, we don't like the way they look. There was no uh, um, belief. In fact, many of the primary source material, the Europeans went there, were like, these people are cultured and civilized. And in, in, in the case of Islamic Africa, literate, I mean, there are three quarters of a million handwritten manuscripts surviving from the libraries of Timbuktu alone. The Kingdom of Benin, the Great Wall of Benin, before it was destroyed, was about four times the length of the Great Wall of China. Um, and so one of the sad things is lots of, because of cinema, one of the greatest assets for American military and economic power is Hollywood. And the projection of a white past, even in parts of the world where, where it obviously wasn't a white past, like ancient Egypt, um, has given people an idea that the way the world is today is the way it's always been. A hundred years ago, the second most powerful country in the world was Ottoman Turkey. And in fact, in the time that I'm writing about in this book, Ottoman Turkey was much more powerful than Britain. And Britain was very conscious of that. Britain had an allegiance with the Moroccans against Catholic Spain. French had an allegiance, this is in the 16th century, with the Ottomans against Catholic Spain. 
that's unthinkable today. Mm. A, a Western European country having an allegiance with a Muslim power against fellow Europeans, for example. So the world is changing all sorts of ways. And what, what I wanted to show with this book is, is a couple of different things. One, I wanted to write a book, a period drama that wasn't from the perspective of elites. It, it, most period drama is about kings and queens and rich people. And, and it's rich people not doing any horrible stuff. I mean, like you don't see how they got rich, right? So it's like all of this lovely period drama where rich people are just wearing these wonderful dresses and drinking all this coffee and tea and, and sugar and not asking how any of that got there or, or what they did to get to that position, you know. There's no badness. They yeah. just happen to be rich somehow, right? Um, so a lot of that stuff is very naive to me. And it's sad because the real portrayal of rags to riches would make more interesting cinema, in my mm. view, or more interesting reading, even as brutal as some as that was. So I wanted to write from perspective of a lower class person. And that, that, that's really, really important to me in that period because I've never really seen that 500 years ago. But I also, the inspiration of Shakespeare's Dark Lady sonnets, because Shakespeare's got a whole series of sonnets to what is a black woman. I mean, you read the sonnets, it's very, very clear. There's some theories about who she was, but we don't know much. Um, but then also there was this other, there's this parallel train track, as you'll see with the poem of, of the Dark Lady's story going alongside Henry's story. There's sort of this, medieval Benin journey through Africa sort of attempt to give people that sense of, of, a, of, of medieval African existence. And lots of people you'll find will be shocked at the actual facts. Not, we don't need to be romantic. The, the kingdom of, of the Congo had diplomatic relations with the Vatican from 1490. The kingdom of Benin had diplomatic representatives in Portugal and there were frequently exchanged letters between the kingdom of Congo and the kingdom of Portugal. They were writing to one another. Like, so the assumption that history was predestined to pan out the way it did is simply not true. Mm. And the reason why that's important for people to know is because if we believe history was predestined to pan out one way, we'll believe that it's not, it continues to be predestined to pan out in one way. Whereas I think having a historical sense of oneself and of one's own history um, is really, really important because it shapes the way you view your role in the present world and, and consequently in, in the future. Um, and so I think all of that is bound up with hopefully what is just a good story about a young boy coming of age, doing regular things that teenagers do, being around badness, trying to get laid, <laughs> like doing stuff that teenage boys do, happens to be exceptionally talented, a bit egotistical, a bit of a of an idiot in places. Um, and I hope people people relate to Henry's journey and his story and, and find something in it of value. Right on. Salute, Akala. Thank you so much for your time. There's so much more. Oh my God, there's no, so much to discuss. Pleasure. But it was it was such a joy to, to talk to you and to listen to you, as always. Um, but yeah, thank you for... Uh, being no, on the seat. You. I have to ask one more question, actually. Do you still get the tube or have you switched on us? <laughs> tell the truth. <laughs> I, have, I have to tell the truth. I have to tell the truth. Man, switched. Though I have my reasons, right? I get on the train if I'm going into city, but the tube, the, when I stopped getting on the tube, I fell asleep on the tube one time. Now, I'm not blaming the public because man's, man's turned bougie in it. I just have to take that on the chin in it and accept it. Man's a champagne socialist or whatever. People want to call me <laughs> for not getting on the tube. I'll take it on the chin. But I was on the tube one time. Two things happened. I, 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 unfortunately, you know, some young lads were quite rude to me once. And as I said to you before, I didn't respond the way they expected me to respond, right? And I was like, I don't want to be on a tube and, and get in a situation where someone tries to get bright and I show them that I can get bright back. So that was one part of it. Um, and two, someone filmed me sleeping and then sent me the video. Okay, that's rude. Yeah, like, 
Like, loud man, innit? Like, I was asleep. I fell asleep on the tube. Like, of course I fell asleep on the tube. Man's, it's calm, innit? Man was tired. Um, and so that kind of weirdo behavior means that at some point you just have to accept that I'm a, I'm a bat. You'll see me around walking even. But but the tube thing and the rush hour thing and all of that, I'll be honest, yeah, man, man, I have to take it on the chin. Man, man's turned bougie. I ain't got on the tube in about <laughs> probably a couple of years now, fam. Like, maybe going on three, four years, man, he'd been on the tube still. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, yes, yes, bad. Look, not mad at you, Carla, standing in your truth. That, that's why we, that's why we love you. Thank you so much. You won't see him on the tube, but you no, can buy his up, book. Sis. Pick up, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of The City, a podcast dedicated to, in my humble opinion, the best city in the world. Now, don't forget, if you like what you've heard, tell your mates, give us a rating, and I'll be back with a full series in the autumn. Okay.